Welcome to Mentality, where we spill the tea on the psyche. My name is Camera. My name is Light. And we are here with the fantastic Known Wells to talk about eating disorders and mental health with men. And Known is the fantastic producer and host of the Yumi Empathy Podcast and the Feely Human Collective. Known, if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me, Camera and Light. I appreciate it. Myself, let's see. <laughs> I... I'm a feely human. I'm a silly boy. I once buried a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the backyard as a child, and the next day dug it up and ate it. So, Did it ooh. grow any tree or anything like that? Ah, oh, gosh, ooh. I wish. Maybe a, a few mushrooms tree. in Maybe there. A, yeah, uh, a peanut butter and jelly tree. That's, that's right. something I could use. Oh, my goodness. Let's, let's patent that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, I I care deeply about human connection and empathy and vulnerability, and I am someone who has a lot of lived experience in mental health. There's a lot of, you know, alcoholism in my family. I have a brother who has schizophrenia. There's depression, and and I have clinical depression myself. Mm. I've battled anorexia for about a decade, about a decade ago. And I, yeah, I just care deeply about making the world a bit more feely and empathetic and feely, talking about feelings. We need to talk about our feelings. We need to explore them and be curious. And that's, that's my space. That's, that's my jam. I love it. I love having like feely conversations. And I feel like you creating, especially with men, like talking about their feelings and being more just in in the moment with that, I think is really powerful. And I think right now is a powerful time to start the conversation with some tea, getting into a little <laughs> teaser of what we'll be talking about here. So I have with me today some wonderful daydreamer tea, which is this like kind of banana, like chamomile tea. And this is from Naya, one of my favorite little loose leaf brands. What do you guys got going on? <laughs> Go ahead, Light. Yeah, okay. Well, I got a Trader Joe's citrus tea, just like last time, really representing the Trader Joe's here. <laughs> so I, I was feeling citrus today. So uh, yeah, that's what that's what I'm drinking. Just it's something simple. Yummy. I well, I heard this was the number one Trader Joe's podcast, so I <laughs> sponsored. Oh yeah, that's not the sponsored. Goal. <laughs> I also brought my Trader Joe's peppermint tea, and it's delicious, and it's something I like to drink in the evenings. And uh, yeah, happy to be here. I drink with that tea. a ton over mm. Christmas. Peppermint break. is my total evening tea. It is yes. just a, a solid evening before bed tea. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is. It just makes you feel so good. Peppermint, just, I don't know. There's just something about it. It feels energizing in like a relaxing way. I don't know how to describe it. I, I love peppermint. <laughs> Same. It's a refreshing calm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Refreshing. Refreshing calm is a good way of putting it. So I, I kind of want to dive in because you said a lot of different things there that, I, that I'd like to kind of unpack a little bit. The first thing, because I know this is really relevant to kind of what you do in life, is the term feely. If you could kind of go into like what that what that means and what that means to you a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So the origin story of that, you know, I, I basically started calling listeners of You Me Empathy feely humans. And I was like, that's this aligns. And as I started to kind of think about it and unpack it and then, you know, launch the feely human collective, I've come to. The definition of feely human being someone who leads with their heart, someone who usually is a bleeding heart, you know, <laughs> someone who values emotional intelligence and curiosity, someone who deeply cares about others and the planet, someone who is sensitive. And, you know, I don't know if you guys got this growing up, but I was always called too sensitive. Like it was a bad thing, like it was some sort of negative thing, but yeah, yeah isn't that terrible? <laughs> it's terrible, it's terrible, but I, <laughs> being a feely human means your sensitivity is is your superpower, your willingness to venture into your own heart and to be curious about your emotions is your superpower. I think doing so unlocks so much healing and connection and growth and clarity and perspective and so uh yeah that's what a feely human is i really like that i feel like there isn't like a like you said you took the term feely to kind of get rid of the whole stigma of sensitive and emotional and i think 
a lot of people like growing up, I mean, I had a best friend who told me I was too nice growing up and I was a crybaby. And hmm. we don't really have ways, especially if you're told you were, you were sensitive growing up, that that can kind of hurt you and make you not want to explore your emotions. My question, I guess, would be like, what was your experience with mental health in that aspect as a young kid? Hmm. Yeah. So last year I did EMDR for the first time. And I didn't do it that much, but I did it enough to really sort of trigger in me a look, a deep look at my inner child and thinking about really like contemplating on who I was as a kid and really going back to scenes from childhood, specifically traumatic scenes. Could you describe EMDR just real quick? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. EMDR is electromagnetic desensitization and reprocessing. It's a type of therapy that I think was developed for PTSD specifically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's 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 about trauma reprocessing. The idea is that you go back to maybe specific triggering traumatic memories in order to uh, reintegrate them in your body. So like when... For instance, you're going about your day and you see something or smell something and that triggers that memory and then your body seizes up and then you you panic or whatever. The idea for EMDR is to allow yourself to like, maybe you sense that, maybe you smell it, maybe you see it and it's not so triggering. It's not so, it's not re-triggering that trauma. So it's about integrating those memories as opposed to like getting stuck in them. Mm-hmm. And so you explored that. Yeah, I explored that. And I the roundabout way is saying I, I went back into my childhood. I explored that. And I was very sensitive. I was very sensitive. I realized that I, not just this last year, but I have been realizing that I have a tendency to shut down emotionally when I'm feeling overwhelmed or when I'm feeling not seen or when I'm feeling insecure, I just shut down. I like, I just shut down and nothing can get in. And that was, that was the survival thing. That was a survival tool that I used growing up to protect me from my dad, protect me from, you know, the people that said I was sensitive just to protect me, you know, and, and sometimes our protective things are like wonderful survival tools. Right. But like, as we get into adulthood, they become things that may not serve us anymore. And so I had to kind of reconcile that a bit, but I think I lost your question in my rambling. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Yeah. It was, we mostly just kind of wanted to explore so you mentioned clinical depression and then also eating disorders. Yeah. Were these things that you, when you were growing up, found that you, you struggled with or are these things that developed as you got older? Well, the funny thing, I mean, not the funny thing, the, the curious thing and, and I think is a very common thing that adults with mental illness realize is that often it starts much earlier than we realize. And that was the case for me. So I I had depression growing up, but I didn't know it. And I couldn't look at it. I didn't know how to look at it. I was too sort of in protective mode. I felt very alone a lot. And I didn't get diagnosed with depression until my 20s. But I had it. You know, I certainly had it. In looking back and reflecting back on childhood and stuff, there was a lot of anger, right? That's a telltale sign of depression. There was a lot of drinking early. You know, I started drinking at 13. There was a lot of acting out. I did a lot of stuff that I'm not proud of, like, you know, vandalism and just horrible stuff that dirtbag kids do, you know? So yeah, I I had depression going up, but I didn't get diagnosed until my 20s. And the eating disorder stuff started around 17, 18 and lasted maybe a decade. And as far as eating disorders go, I know we've talked about this Prior to the interview, but I, I can't remember if we've mentioned it. What's what specific eating disorder was it? It was anorexia. I, I was never again with the depression. Well, not with the depression because I was clinically diagnosed with depression. But with anorexia, I was not clinically diagnosed. I basically went through my eating disorder and recovery alone. You know, with the help of family here and there. But um, 
but it was anorexia. I, I, you know, nearly starved myself to death. Growing up, did you have any knowledge about eating disorders and depression at all? Was that something that was talked about at all in your family? That's a good question. No, it wasn't. I don't think we were really open in that way. I'm assuming I'm older than you guys. I'm, I'll be 40 this year. It was at a time where my family was like strangely, like my parents were strangely strict in some ways, but also strangely freeing in other ways. Like I would just be gone all day, sometimes for a couple nights at a time. And they didn't care or weren't around. And But then they were strict in weird religious ways that felt very oppressive. So uh, we didn't talk about mental health, no. Yeah, I wonder like what that would look like in kind of more kids growing up today, if that's going to be a conversation people are having more, if they're going to be bringing that up with their kids. Because I've, I've noticed that it's just that even in like a neutral household and such, people don't really want to talk about that. Or even in my growing up, my parents didn't really talk about what mental health was until I was a little bit like a teenager. I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. I, I think yeah. I have hope for that. I do. Yeah. But I, I do think that it takes a lot of getting used to discomfort, right? There's a there's so much we do as humans and I, I bet it was pretty glaring this past year during a global pandemic. Like yeah. there's so much we do to just shut down, right? We like get in our spaces of comfort and it's human. It's it's a fully human thing, but the more we can get used to discomfort and the gray and, you know, shedding the artifice of culture and family and all these things that, that I think can have a tendency to strip us away of our own volition and self-actualization, the better, right? Yeah. We need to be talking about all the things with kids. Like kids see and, and, and take on way more than we give them credit. Like we have this weird tendency as as a culture to like supremely value adults over children like children like oh they'll they'll understand when they get older or something it's very i think it's very damaging they could understand now <laughs> uh, yeah. exactly like exactly have to treat them like they understand yeah with your eating disorder, I mean, you said you first kind of knew that when you were a teenager. Was that something that you had kind of dealt with a little bit before then? Or what was what was the first kind of signs of, of you working through it or kind of being acknowledging it? Yeah, I was 17, 18. I was a freshman in college and I went to college. I got a soccer scholarship. Like my whole family were all soccer players. And I... I I nearly got kicked out of school because I started a fighting club. <gasps> you started a fight club? I did. I started a fight club. And I it lasted three months and I was called into the dean with like a bruised face and eyes and stuff. And he said, I heard you're the leader. First rule, you're talking about it right now. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. They're obviously the fight club doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it doesn't exist, but yeah, you're you're correct. No, I, I bring that up because it's it's just another sign of how really lost and sad and depressed I was, you know? So um, after that, after my first year, basically it started in my first year and I took my first semester of my sophomore year off to, as I put it then, take care of my mom because my mom and my dad had a pretty terrible relationship for their entire life. My dad cheated on my mom for 30 years. He abused her. He abused us. And I kind of inserted myself as the feely sensitive person I was as mediator of sorts and took care of my mom. And, and that's kind of when it started to go downhill. I would just go for runs, 20, 25 mile runs. And, and you know, the, with the intention of just running until the physical pain you know, outshined the the emotional pain, right? And I started, you know, sort of limiting my food intake. And the weird thing about eating disorders and anorexia, I guess, in my case specifically, was it's a control mechanism. It was for me anyways. There's no vanity in it. That's a myth. There's no, like, I want to be smaller necessarily, although maybe metaphorically, right? But there's this idea that like everything around me felt very out of control and this is the thing I can control. 
So it started then and you can control how much you put into your body and yeah. how much you could exercise and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's a thing I could do, which is a punishment in a way. Yeah. It's control and punishment. It's kind of a, people don't realize with, I guess the eating disorder community, you think you're just trying to achieve something. It's really, it seems like it's trying to achieve control and just having this like control over yourself, which really isn't freedom or anything over your, your life. It's deeply damaging, and I got to a place where I moved to to Wales to study abroad the second half of my sophomore year, and I really just took my eating disorder very seriously, and I just, I, you know, I won't mention numbers or anything, but I got very, very sick, and a doctor just said, well, buddy, your your heart's going to stop unless you change something. People don't talk about, like, the physical realities of what it's like living with an eating disorder, and it's it's brutal. My hair was falling out. Every bone in my body hurt. I felt like I needed knee replacements. I couldn't sleep. It was very difficult, yeah. And you said that went on for about 10 years? Yeah. So the real active, like, not eating, you know, actively dying stuff was about two, three years and, you know, maybe seven years of just active recovery, you know, maybe a few years in there in the middle where I was just like, let's get caloric bits in your body known because otherwise you're not going to be able to function. And then the back half of that was about the emotional healing and discovery. What was that kind of turning around point? Was it when you had that conversation with your doctor? Was it the doctor? When he was like, you know, your your heart's going to stop if, if you stop eating. Was that the moment where you're like, you know, like, did you go home that day and try to turn around that day? Or was it a little bit longer than that? That's a good question. It was definitely a, a an important moment in my recovery. And I think there was there was a few important moments. That was one. Another one was trying to see a therapist in Swansea, Wales, and her just kind of looking at me just with no idea what to do. And that felt very defeating. That felt very like, you know, what's the point here? That felt very defeating. That was a moment. Another moment was I tried early on when I moved to Wales, I tried very early on to join the running club of all things. And I went out for a run with the club and I couldn't do it. And I got lost. <laughs> I got lost in the dark in Swansea, Wales. And it was kind of terrifying and it was disorienting. And I mean, that's another thing about living with an active eating disorder is the fact that like there's no fat in your body. It's all trying to protect your heart and your brain. And so you're, you're foggy and your brain function isn't great. And that was another moment. Another moment was... My mother, who I have a on and off relationship with today, but at the time she visited me in Wales and I met her at the airport and she was maybe 10 yards away and she saw me and I recognized in her that she didn't realize how severe it was. And she just broke down, started crying, and I cried, and, and we kind of, for the next month, we traveled around Europe a, a bit to kind of end my time in Europe there. But that was hard to see, you know, someone like my mother seeing me in that way. It seems like being vulnerable with her was, although that was painful, it seems like it was like a helpful moment of like reflection to think about what your future could look like or would want to look like. It was. Well, I mean, it's anytime a loved one, right, sees you and, and you're being witness to that and you see them break down and you see them. I mean, I am, you know, I'm reflecting in that moment like I am a different person, right? She's seen a different person and that's hard, right? Like that that's a hard thing about mental illness, right? Like I have a brother I mentioned who has schizophrenia and he is someone I love deeply but he was also someone I, he will never be the same, I should say. And that's hard. That's a hard reality to live with. But yeah, that was the case for my mom is it was just this moment of her seeing me as, as not her son. 
So when when all of those moments kind of, you know, came, came together and such, what was the start of your journey to kind of turn around at that point? What were some of the steps that you took personally? Yeah, well, the first step was really just to to get into the cycle of trying to eat. And that took some time and, and it was really, my mom was very helpful in this early on. You know, I, I was with her for a period of time and she, you know, she just made sure I was eating and I wasn't refusing or anything at that time. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And it was weird and it was uncomfortable. And I was, you know, the, the emotional hold was still there, but it was just about getting into the habit of like eating food again. And that took a while. So that was like a huge step and a long step. And then really therapy writing, a lot of writing, great deal of writing, a great deal of bad writing. <laughs> was it like reflective writing, like journal entries or was it? Yeah, it was journaling. It was reflecting. It was some fiction writing. I wrote this very, very, very dark, you know, hundred page novella that was basically me. And it was, it was deeply dark. And so a lot of writing and that helped. Yeah. I think it's important to write the dark side and just kind of have that be somewhere. Hey, that's cathartic. I've done that before. It's very cathartic. I feel like if it's stuck in your mind, that can kind of be damaging or for sure. not really understand. For sure. And I, you know, you, you we, we see ourselves and our characters and it's important to get the stuff out. I, I agree. So yeah, writing, trying therapy early on, eating. And then I think meeting my life partner was crucial mm -hmm. in my recovery and, and self-awareness, really. Yeah. So those things. At what point in your recovery did you meet your life partner? It was the end of 2007, so it's 2021 now. <laughs> How many years ago is that? 13 <laughs> plus years, 14, 14 years? Yeah. So how old am I? I'll be 40 this year, so I was 26, 27 when I met her. And I was, at that point, still kind of in the tail end of my eating disorder recovery, I really hadn't started therapy for real at that point, and I hadn't been diagnosed with depression at that point either. It, it took it took a couple of years. It's been I think only like ten years oh. that you've been actually clinically like diagnosed with with depression. That's right. Yeah. So it was early on, and I'm so grateful for her because she had a very stable deeply caring and loving family that I just cherish so much. And it was very different from the experience I had. And I felt safe. You've spoken about recovery a few times. And I have a question of, is an eating disorder something that you kind of, is there kind of an end to it? Or is it something kind of like a journey that you're, you're going to carry with you for a long time? Or, or do you consider yourself like kind of past it? I think that's a very important question, Light. I think it's to each their own and how they use the language and what that language means to them. For me, I considered myself recovered. I know some people who might consider themselves in recovery for their lifetime, right? And I, I think it's it's to each their own. For myself, I think I am grateful and feels good to call myself recovered. That's awesome. Yeah. What is your relationship with food now then? Like, has it, yeah, I guess, I guess that the, the question is like, <laughs> what is your relationship to food now? I love it. I wish I could love it more wholly. And by that, I mean, like, I have stupid, like wheat allergies mm. and I'm allergic to soy, you know? So I have some like stupid sensitivities that annoy me, but <laughs> I love to cook. I am the cook in the family. <laughs> I love to explore new stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it's a joy. It it's a true joy. Like eating, yeah, it's a joy. That's good. Yeah, I love cooking, so <laughs> it's a good time. I find that fun. It's you know, it's, some days I'm not feeling it, but there's other days where it's just very relaxing to go and just cut up vegetables and and eat and enjoy something you've made. <laughs> yes. yes. I love how your your mental health journey, it seems like that kind of started after you were working on your eating disorder journey. Did those kind of coincide or what was the catalyst of you getting diagnosed with clinical depression? I think the catalyst was Jessica, my life partner. She was really the first person to reflect me back in a way that I didn't like. <laughs> I had never really 
had any serious relationships before the person I'm married to now. And in that comes a certain sense of vulnerability. And with vulnerability comes a sense of how we can be mirrors for each other. And Jessica was my mirror and I saw some things I didn't like. I saw some glaring things that that spoke of a lack of self-awareness, a lack of self-confidence, a lack of really just curiosity uh, in self. And so that was huge. And that's kind of when I started therapy for real. And I mean, it took a few years to really find the person that I liked, but that was, I think, the most important catalyst. Yeah. And I think it's really important to hit the point that it took you a little bit of time to find that right person that worked well, or at least the first person to work well. Like, I feel like therapy can be a hard journey to balance if you think that the first person that you meet with is going to fix you or going to be the solution to it all. Yeah, well, yes, that's a very important point. And I'll also say in addition to that, I love therapy. It may not be for everyone, but I also say that like there's so many myriad ways to find ourselves and find healing. And it could be mm-hmm. any combination of therapy and medication and journaling and playing video games and, and <laughs> podcasting. Meditation. That's another good one. And meditation, <laughs> right? And hardcore drugs. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, therapy, just as you said, it doesn't work for everybody. I think it would be a great thing for everybody to at least try it, but you know, it doesn't work for everybody, but you know, same with meditation, you know, I mean, there's so many ways to find yourself. Journaling is another great one. You know, that's one of those ones that I I wish I personally did more because every time I do it, I enjoy it. Hmm. And then I find myself like, oh, wow, I didn't do this for two weeks a month, <laughs> you know, I need to, I need to keep this up. But that, that is one thing that, you know, I, I enjoy journaling and I do meditation all the time. You can start tomorrow, Light. I could, yeah. You can start tonight, Light. I could start tonight. I have it right next to me. There you go. <laughs> I have no excuse. It's in the desk that I'm sitting at right now. So. It's just the discipline of it. It's, it's the discipline. Yeah. You know, what is it today that you are doing with mental health? Like what are, what are your key practices or therapies that you are, are doing? Hmm. I am in therapy, like talk therapy. Uh, although I, I've been good lately. I've been feeling good. So I, I maybe see my therapist once every couple of months, you know, when I kind of as needed basis. Hmm. I recently am sober. Oh. It's kind of a new thing for me. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. I mentioned before, I think briefly that I started drinking very early at 13 years old. And so... Mm-hmm. There was a lot of abuse of alcohol and it's been like 40 days and I woke up and I was like, this no longer serves me. And I, and since then I can honestly say it feels very aligned. I'm feeling much lighter and clearer. And I don't know, like it is telling that like even someone who has a major depressive disorder chose to drink for so many years, which, you know, alcohol is a depressant, right? So Mm -hmm. That's problematic. So I'm recently sober, and so not drinking has been very helpful for me. And really just lately challenging my creativity. I'm working on a book. I'm working on another, you know, fun project, continuing to explore ways I can bring more education in mental health in colleges and campuses and things like that. Also recently been sort of experimenting and finding a lot of like healing in uh, psilocybin mushrooms so yeah oh that's interesting actually if you want to go into that like i i've been doing like a lot of introspection and research into that and hearing a lot about the discussions of what's been going on with the studies of how that can be helpful for depression if like microdosed yeah so i am not an expert to be clear just a silly boy but <laughs> For the last month and a half, maybe probably two months, actually, I've been microdosing psilocybin and have been feeling much lighter, much clearer, just less prone to anger, just less sharp, like less sharp edges, like softer, you know, which feels wonderful. And then in addition to that, I've only done a trip dose once. I have another coming up 
at the end of this month. But And that experience was truly profound. It's work. It's emotional work is what it is. Yeah. And that's why I want to do it. That's why I like to do it. It's not something I'm going to do every month or, you know, as, as often as that. But like it is it is another tool that allows us to reflect and to feel and to maybe see how connected we are, you know, to maybe see outside of our own small windows. That's really great. I'm excited to see like what the research goes into that more. And I think that there's just a lot of important research to be done. And, and there's so many different avenues now today for, for us to be able to be getting into our mental health and like what can work for everyone else. So I'm glad that that works for you. Thank you. I, I do truly feel like psychedelics are an important part of the future of mental health. Yeah. Kind of along those, those same lines, I kind of wanted to pivot a little bit of being a, a male in the, the mental health space and like spreading, you know, mental health awareness and such like that. I kind of wanted to ask what that's been like for you. Mm-hmm. Something that, that we've really tried hard in, in mentality is to be able to share the perspectives from, from a whole range of people. But there's a, a significant lack in males in this space. So I wanted to ask kind of what your journey has been like in like being a a male with depression, being a male with anorexia, Mm. if that at all changed the way that you approached it, if that changed the way that other people approached it with you. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a important question. And I believe very deeply and strongly in representation and intersectionality when it comes to like my own mental health and, and me being someone who has identifies as male you know, I think early on there might have been, I'm sure there was a bit of that kind of typically male sort of, I am going to stuff this down. There was, I think, a lot of that. And I, I think a lot of that also had to do with just my own upbringing. But honestly, I get asked this question from time to time. And, and I think an important touchstone in this perspective for me is being raised by my father, who was a tyrant, someone who's very violent. And I learned early on as a kid not to trust men and not to be even comfortable around men. So growing up, I had a lot of friends who were girls and it was just the thing, right? And I think to this day, I have a skepticism toward masculinity and and sort of outward masculinity and especially toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. I guess to answer your question honestly, it hasn't been something I've really thought about on the forefront of my mind, you know, me thinking like, "Oh, I am sharing about my mental health, I'm being sensitive, I'm being feely, and I'm also a man." It's just the thing I wanted to do and that felt right and yes, I've been called like awful names that speak to, I think, a great deal of hurt in people and a great deal of stuff we need to improve in the world and in our culture. But for me, it hasn't been a thing, really. And by that, I mean, I hope when other men hear me and and see that I can be sensitive and feely and all and and all sorts of things I am all the things right like all we are all the things as humans I hope they can see that and be be able to tell themselves like hey it's okay to feel it's okay to be sensitive these are wonderful things we all have it in us and it's okay to show that it's a, it's a beautiful gift and mm. I hope that like as I continue to tell my story and share my story on podcasts and in feel the human world, like I, I hope that gives a little something to, to the men out there thinking that like, Hey, cause there's just so much. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it hurts me. It hurts me that men are dying. Right. Yeah. It's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely totally agree is, you know, I, I think we as men are seen as like, you know, keep that all inside, at least for me, you know, I, I kind of the same way of upbringing was talking about these things was not really things that we ever talked about. And like, you should be the the man who, you know, never cries and always like, 
knows all of the right answers and all of these things. And I think that's a really toxic way of looking at it, you know, because mm-hmm. we, we all have feelings, <laughs> yeah. you know, we all we all approach those things much differently. I, I've never been that masculine person that society, it seems, wants me to be. <laughs> and I don't think that's a bad thing. <laughs> well, the problem is there's like there's these stereotypes that men are supposed to be like the strong men and emotions are like not a man thing. It's like a womanly thing is to have emotions. And I think we're at that pivotal point right now where we are reevaluating the stereotypes, reevaluating how we see gender, how we see emotion and, and mental health. And I am curious, knowing like in your experience in the space and in healing what has been your experience with the stereotypes that you've maybe seen and heard, whether maybe not that you've felt them, but maybe you've kind of seen externally? Well, I think that we all have in us the capability of not fitting ourselves into the boxes, not choosing the boxes, right? <laughs> There's just so much apparatus that like restricts us as humans. And I think you're right, Camera. Like, I think we are making improvements. We are reevaluating things. But this stuff operates at an unconscious level. It operates like insidiously so because we don't talk about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I had to get that thought out. Say the question again. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) And I'll actually frame this a little bit better. In your experience in the space, maybe with other men in the space talking about mental health and eating disorders, particularly, what have been the stereotypes? Because when you think of an eating disorder, like if we want to focus on that for a second, most people would think of women. I, I'm really curious of what your experience has been talking about that with other men. Yeah, I mean, I and this is the thing I want to change. Like I, I think about who's been represented on You Me Empathy and it's maybe 80 percent women, you know, and I, I, I want to have more dudes on. <laughs> but I think about like eating disorders specifically And you're right. Like when you think of an eating disorder, the first thing that comes to mind for most people, I'd imagine, understandably so, thin white women. Right. And that's just not the case. Right. That's that's racism operating at a level that's media. Right. You know, that's that's a lack of representation. Right. Yeah. And it's unfair on both sides, you know, oh, yeah. if you think yeah. about it, because it means it's it's underrepresenting one one side, you know, and they, they feel unheard, but then it's overrepresenting another one to where they, they feel like possibly there's just something wrong, right? <laughs> you know, with them. And yeah, it's unfair on both sides. It is. And this is, this is the thing we do as people, right? We want to put people into categories. We want to put little bits of information into categories and into boxes because it's easier to understand. It's, it's, it doesn't rattle our little pea brains, you know, it's just easier to understand. It's, it's more comfortable, but it's deeply problematic. It's deeply problematic. So getting comfortable with the mess and the muck and sitting in our discomfort, that's, that's where we're going to find healing in these areas. Yeah, I think it's hard for some people like the idea of being invulnerable or being uncomfortable or sitting with possibly emotions that they haven't dealt with or that they've never been told that they can deal with is just something that people don't realize is something that they can do or that what are the first steps to it, which I hope is something that we can start like breaking down the barriers for both men and women, non-binary and and each and other just to kind of get those conversations continued. Absolutely. And I, I think it starts with communities like The Mighty, right? Yeah. Or this podcast, right? And people hearing the stories of others, empathize. Or yours. <laughs> you mean empathy. Yeah. yeah. Nah, it's a terrible podcast. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, but like it also takes safety, right? Because a lot yeah. of times mm-hmm. we don't open up or we can't feel like we can open up because the people aren't safe around us. So people like yourself creating those ripple effects in our own you know, relationships and friendships and communities. That's the key. Yeah, I I know that that's something, you know, me and Cameron have talked about a lot is that we want to make sure that we have as equal representation as we possibly can, because we, we want to make sure that each side gets its say, all of the sides get their say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we were noticing that it's like, you know, we'd have the vast majority of, of women on the podcast and we're like, we want to make sure that we we balance this out because we don't want it ever to appear that it's like only women can have the, you know, mental health disorders or men can't have mental health disorders so they won't talk about it or something like we wanted to open up 
those gates for for everyone to talk about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having someone like you on the podcast helps a man listening to the podcast be like, oh, I can talk about this. I'm not alone. I can be a feely yeah, human. Yeah, I can be a feely human. It's not a bad word. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, thank you for doing your podcast and, and, and going out there and telling your story. Yeah, it's my deep joy. I love that. With doing your podcast or even maybe even before this, like, how did you go about finding community? Well, whether it's what was well in recovery or while finding your diagnosis of depression, where were the places that you went that you found? Mm. Well, you guys may be too young for this, but initially I went to, oh, shoot, um, I'm forgetting. I'm drawing a blank on the name. Um, it was like a painting. <laughs> no, <laughs> but good callback. Good times. It was a online like journaling place, live journal. That's live it. Journal. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah, it was like an just a like an online blogging like free place, and and that's when I first started really just exploring self. And there was a lot of just terrible writing and and terrible politics, and just you know just getting stuff out. So like that was a place of community for sure. Honestly, I think back like in my recovery from anorexia and I, I wish I had community back then. Um, I wish I knew how to look for it. I guess this was at the end of 2019. I went and led a workshop at Project Heal's uh, camp, Heal, their first. And it was my first time in my life ever being around others who have been either in recovery or recovered from eating disorders. And it was, it felt like family. It felt like home. I felt like I was with my people and I wish I would have had that, you know, in my early recovery. But I think the way I'm reflecting that outward now and making that happen in my own life now is really about, it starts with vulnerability. You know, vulnerability is a connecting force. It starts with having conversations on podcasts, right? It starts with leading workshops at schools and talking about this stuff and then, you know, allowing for the students to to do stuff for Feely Human and to like explore their own mental health through art or whatever, or writing, right? It's about making those connections at the heart level and allowing for them to see, whoever to see, that you're a safe space. That's great. How has that grown with your your podcast and with your projects in general? What are some of the steps that you've taken to to be inclusive in in the podcasts and such like that? Hmm. You know, really just being very intentional about who comes on the show. I try to be as diverse as humanly possible. I also don't say no a lot. At least early on, I, I'm very improv of you. Yes, and. <laughs> <laughs> I am trying to find space for no nowadays because, you know, I'm overwhelmed and that's an important self-care as well. Yeah. We appreciate you really like spending the time with us and, and finding out like what it is that like we can be doing and that you're doing within Yumi Empathy and within Feely Human and kind of helping obviously like all genders and such. But I think particularly right now in this episode, like, what is the best way that you think men can start reaching out for help or can at least like kind of start that conversation within themselves? If you feel like if you were a young teenage guy right now or trying to figure out mental health at the first level, like what would that look like? Oh, gosh. I mean, being a teenager is hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm glad you that's know, over now. I mean, it's hard being a human, right? I'd say there are tremendous organizations like like the mighty, right? That have like community, like mm-hmm. NAMI, you know, like local to me, NAMI Orange County is a great mm-hmm. resource and they do a ton of stuff for uh, that population, the teenage population and younger. Listening to podcasts, writing, finding the people who are safe, finding the people who will meet you where you are and see you for who you are. Like that is that is so important, you know, because there's so much in this world that doesn't want to do that, that doesn't want to see you for who you are. So find the people who see you for who you are. And it's it's pretty apparent when you find those people, you know, it feels good, it feels safe, you feel 
comfortable being all of who you are and and at that age as as a teenager you you probably don't know all of who you are now but you'll you'll have the space to explore it so that's that's where it starts yeah and i think it's great that there are like a lot of different avenues now and especially things like your podcast and you said you're working on some projects and some books i know that in your podcast you're talking about a picture book and I was like getting excited about that. I'm like, ooh, that that sounds great. Like Billy Human has a very artistic vibe to it that I'm like, I think a picture <laughs> book would be really great. Hmm. Yeah, I mean I've I am working on a picture book. It's in progress. I've never done it. I've never written a picture book. I've never been published in anything. So it's it's a it's a big step and it it might not happen, but it's been fun exploring the concepts of specifically for this picture book feelings and and how mm. even young children could contemplate the basic concepts of feeling our feelings right so yeah that's been exciting that's been a fun project to explore for sure it's always exhilarating doing something new right yeah <laughs> something you've never done before for sure so starting to wrap up a little bit i, I kind of wanted to to ask you of the things you can share what are some of the, the projects that you're working on now and some of your, your future projects and also just kind of where people can find you and, and what to expect and all of that stuff? Sure. Yeah. So I will continually work on Feely Human. It's just me. So I'm taking it very slowly, intentionally, but I'm working on a workshop that I will probably sell on the site at some point. Uh, and the workshops on the topic of empathy and advocacy in a world that seems very divided. Mm. So what that looks like and the limits of empathy and how we take care of ourselves in empathetic acts and how we have and can sort of hold empathy in our hearts in a world where Trump existed, right? Yeah. yeah. Still exists for right now. <laughs> yeah, right. So navigating the concepts of empathy in a world that's divided. So I'm working on a workshop. I'm working on some new products that are coming to the shop soon-ish. They'll come this year. And then I want to do more in-person stuff. You know, Obviously, we're in a pandemic, and mm -hmm. that probably won't happen until <laughs> toward the end of the year, fingers crossed. But the stuff that I've done in person at local colleges have, have been just some of the most joyous stuff. And then... The last thing I'll mention is I'm working on potentially, we're still like in ideation phase, but I'm working on a deck of cards. Essentially, they will be feely human cards, essentially tools for thinking critically about empathy and feelings and vulnerability. So, and I'm working with an artist with that early stages, but those are some exciting things. That's awesome. That's really exciting. I, I like the idea of cards and such. Are, are these like cards, like a deck of cards? Is this like cards that you would give to your friends and family, like a, a postcard or? Oh, yeah, yeah. Tarot cards. That's a great, that's <laughs> yeah. a great clarification. They're like a, it's like an affirmation deck of cards. Oh, so you buy the deck and you can like pick up a card and it has some sort of action points for thinking about empathy in new ways, you know, things like that. Ooh, oh, I like that a lot. I love those kind of like little things. I think that's wonderful. That's awesome. It's a great idea. Yeah, thanks. Right. I think the last thing that I would like to say before we kind of wrap this episode up is in general, if you like if there is someone who is struggling right now who is listening to this who is going through as we talked about eating disorders or they're like trying to get diagnosed with depression, what would be your recommendation for them today? Seek a professional's advice and support. Um there are tremendous people out there and there's great organizations that offer sliding scale therapy or even pro bono therapy. I mentioned NAMI or the Mighty or Project Heal is a great eating disorder recovery uh, group. Eating Recovery Center, ERC is great. Yeah, I mean definitely like talk to a professional. Like that's 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 why they're there. There's some amazing crisis hotlines too out there and text lines. But yeah, and and just know that you're not alone. Know that whatever you're going through, other people's are other people are also going through that thing. So you're not alone in your your illness. You're not alone in your feelings. Mental illness can make us feel very isolated, but you're not alone. I think that's a wonderful point. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Noon. 
This has been great. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful hearing, you know, your journey and how you've navigated through it and, you know, the amazing things that you're doing now. It's been really nice to to hear that and, and get to know you and keep up with what you're doing. It's it's all amazing stuff. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. You're a great support in the community. It's always great to meet another mental health podcaster who's just that you're really breaking barriers and really doing wonderful things. I'm excited and just excited to continue listening to your journey. Oh, thank you so much. But yeah, if you want to share with our audience where we can find you, um, like whether socials or your website and all of that, if you want to give that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Light and Camera. I, I so appreciate those kind words. I share the same with you guys. I, I think you guys are doing a wonderful job with this show and it's courageous and brave to do what you're doing. And I'll say what I'm doing too. It's, it's, it's important. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So my website is feelyhuman.co.co, feelyhuman.co. I'm on Instagram. I'm not on any other socials anymore. And that feels wonderful. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. I'm on Instagram at feelyhuman is the Feely Human Collective and the podcast Yumi Empathy is at Yumi Empathy and then you can listen to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts fantastic well we'll put a link to the podcast in our episode description as well perfect thank you known thank you for coming for drinking tea with us for spilling the tea on basically your your journey with the eating disorder and with mental health like i think that it's just really great to be able to share more of these journeys especially ones that are not the, the, the same one that you've heard over and over again so thank you for for sharing with us today we really appreciate it you're welcome yeah all right. Well, let's let's go and and grab some dinner. <laughs> yes, food. Food is good. Food is good. Thank you all, and until next time. The tea. Thank you so Bye. much. All right. all right. Bye. Bye.